0: First of all, I want to share a testimony. Last time I preached, I invited all those who are here to participate in the Revived by His Word daily Bible reading that the General Conference has implemented. It started this past, what, Wednesday, Tuesday? It's just going through a chapter a day in the Bible. And so today it would be Genesis chapter 5. So it's been five days. And uh, the... Uh, the plan reaches all the way till the general conference session in 2015, and I've been reading every day. But I decided to do something since so it's only a chapter long and it doesn't take that long to read. I decided to read it in Hebrew, and I know that probably nobody here can read Hebrew, but it has been such a rich blessing. And you don't have to do it in Hebrew to get a blessing. It's just that it's been such a blessing to discover as you go very slowly because I'm not an expert in Hebrew, but to see the new, rich discoveries that God has in his word. And so I want to encourage you to read just that chapter a day. Let me me just share something with you, if I might. Again, this is part of the testimony, but go to Genesis chapter 4. This was yesterday's reading, and as I was reading it in Hebrew, this jumped out at me that I had not noticed before. Genesis chapter 4. And um, verse 10. Genesis 4, verse 10. And he said, What have you done? This is God speaking now. The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And verse 13 and Cain said to the Lord my punishment is greater than I can bear. That jumped out at me because the word for punishment that is used here is the Hebrew word avon which means guilt or punishment or shame or and so so Uh, Cain says, my punishment is too much, my guilt is too much for me to, and the word for bear in Hebrew is nasa, which is actually the word that we have in the Old Testament for forgive or to bear up or to take. And whenever those two words are put together, in the prophets, for example, it's speaking of God bearing our sin instead, bearing our shame and our guilt. And so, We see from Cain's sacrifice that he was trying to bear his own guilt, wasn't he? He brought his fruit, the labor of his own hands, to the altar. And he had it all wrong. He thought that God was requiring him to bear his own guilt. When in fact, if you look up Micah 7.18, is another place where the two words avon and nasa is used. We see that God says, I am bearing your guilt. Isn't that beautiful? God is the one who bears our guilt. So we are not called to bear our own guilt because we cannot bear our own guilt. And God instead wants to lift it up and take it away from us. That's what the word nasa means, to lift up, to bear, to carry. And so God says, I'm carrying your guilt instead. And he took it to the cross, did he not? Isn't that beautiful? Let's have a word of prayer now as we get into our sermon, our final third sermon. So let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we want to thank you so very much that you are a God of grace and love and mercy. And you've given us so many blessings. And the financial blessings are just a small part of the blessings that you give to us, and yet we don't want to diminish those. So we pray that we would just be able to get heart-to-heart with you. And out of a willing, eager, thankful heart, we would not leave anything out of your reach in our lives, whether it's money, whether it's time, whether it's resources, whether it's our intellect, whatever it is, Lord, that it would all be committed to you for your service. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I was standing outside my church in West Lebanon when I was pastoring there in New Hampshire. And we were standing outside on the street, the road that the church is on. Some of you have been to that old church. It's since moved, actually. But it was after a funeral, and we had poured out onto the sidewalk, uh, sorry, onto the street, because the church is right on the street. And so we all spilled out, as we often do. And we were just chatting. People were offering their condolences. And I was kind of standing out in the middle of the street. And all of a sudden, I saw this... SUV storming down the street towards the crowd. And so kind of in the corner of my eye, I took note of that, and I noticed, however, that this car slowed down as it came upon us, and it was on the side of the road that we were not standing. We were on the other side of the road, but I was in the middle. And so this car, this SUV, slowed down. The guy in the car rolled down his window, and from inside his car, he said to me, It was just coincidental, I guess. I, as the pastor, was the one he spoke to. He said, can you do me a favor? Can you hold this for a minute? I will be right back. And he then, through his window, handed me a magazine. And then, as soon as that happened, he stormed off. And I thought, that's really odd. But then I looked down at the magazine, and there, in big, bold letters, at the top of the magazine was the word the watchtower. And I said to myself, something tells me this guy is not coming back. <laughs> the watchtower, for those who don't know it, is a publication by our Jehovah's Witness brothers and sisters. But as I was analyzing what had happened, I realized that I had been the victim of drive-by evangelism. <laughs> both literally and figuratively. (laughs) And it got me to thinking about how do I share the hope that is within me with other people? Do I drop in and drop out? Do I stand from a distance and hand something to somebody but not get down in the trenches with them? Or do I take an actual interest in their lives? Open the pages of your Bibles this morning to our scripture that we just read in the book of Luke. We're continuing on our series called Seeking the Lost. And again, I'm going to urge you if you've not heard the previous two sermons or or one of the two sermons to go on our church website, bangorsda.org. And you can download those two sermons as well as the study guides. But we've been looking at this topic of sharing our faith of sharing the gospel and why and how and when and where and we've been looking through at a couple of stories in the book of Acts but today we're going to read a story in first Acts which is Luke because Luke and Acts kind of were just one continuous book that were written by the same author and so we're going to to drop into the book of Luke now this morning to Luke chapter 15 a chapter that many of us probably are very well aware of and have read many times. There's three parables in this chapter that I love. I like to call them the Lost and Found Trilogy, a story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And every story is about that which was lost being found. it's just a wonderful picture of the gospel, but many times we maybe jump over the introductory words in this chapter. And we're going to spend a little time looking at that this morning. Notice what Luke records in Luke chapter 15. He says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, Jesus, to hear him. And the Pharisees, verse 2, and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. What a scandalous thing to have said of you, isn't it? But but Luke says in verse 1, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him. We maybe don't appreciate as we could and as we should, the exact scandal that Jesus was participating in. You see, we're living here in the 21st century, 2,000 years or so after Jesus lived, and uh, we don't quite appreciate just the significance of what Jesus was doing. Now, you and I have just come across... April 15 ourselves, and we probably have similar thoughts to tax collectors these days. I know that I am not a big fan of this particular season, but even though we have some animosity towards such individuals, it compares nothing to what they felt in Jesus Day. We know, of course, the story of Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, and uh, Jesus ate with him and had lunch with him, and it was it was quite a an experience that Zacchaeus had climbing up in a tree. And so we get a little sense for what the whole dynamics were with tax collectors. But these tax collectors, as you may know, were actually, essentially, employees of the Roman government. Of the occupying force. And so for these individuals to become employees of this Roman government was to turn their backs on the Jewish nation, to turn their backs on their fellow countrymen. I've read stories, perhaps you have as well, of individuals during World War II, for example, who in the ghettos of Warsaw, wherever else, they were, they were co, they, they were being used by the Nazi regime to work against their fellow Jews. And the animosity and hatred that was poured out upon those individuals that conspired against their own fellow countrymen was just brutal. And stories I've heard that I want to repeat today about people after the war being over going out and finding their fellow countrymen who have been joined up with the Nazi regime and just wiping them out brutally. Because there is something about turning your back on your fellow countrymen, isn't there? And so Jesus steps into this, and he goes and he approaches and he fellowships with these tax collectors. Now, who are these sinners, by the way? It's a funny phrase that Luke uses, but uh, he uses it elsewhere, of course, as well, to describe uh, that woman who anointed Jesus' feet. She was a sinner, but what this word denotes is what... Uh, scholars have recognized as those who are called the Am Ha'adets, or the people of the land. You have it there in your study guide. By the way, does anyone not have a study guide? All right, we need, oh, okay. We need to get a few more study guides out. There may not, I may not have copied enough, but is there any, Jeff, you have a few extra? Good. Raise your hand nice and high if you need a study guide. You'll want to get this. It's just a short one today, but there is some dynamite, Dynamite thoughts that I want you to make sure you have. All right, keep your hands raised. Thank you, Jeff. A couple more. guess a lot of... You know, I'm praising the Lord because this means all of you arrived before I copied them, which means you're early for Sabbath school. That does, that's what it means. It doesn't mean I forgot you, Dad. I don't want that to be a badge of honor for you. You know, Don't be doing it proudly here. You didn't know that when you raised your hand, you were essentially saying, I was an early one, but praise the Lord. <laughs> All right, so you have your study guide there. Uh, notice this term, sinners. It's, it's, it's actually another way of saying, am haaretz, or the people of the land. Now, who are these people of the land? Notice what uh, tradition says. In Rabbinic Judaism, the Talmud, Now, the Talmud was the writings that took place during the intertestamental period between the exile and when Jesus rose on the scene, so the last three or 400 years, 500 years. In rabbinic Judaism, before Jesus, that is, in rabbinic Judaism, the Talmud applies the people of the land to uneducated Jews who were deemed likely to be negligent in their observance of the commandments due to their ignorance. So these were individuals who were so filthy, were so dirty, because they did not live up to the observance of the law as they should. And it wasn't necessarily even just the, the Ten Commandments. It was the laws that was stacked upon law by the rabbis and the priests during that time of exile. And we don't, we, we don't want to blame. You know, many times we come to the... Uh, gospels and we see the face off that Jesus has with the rabbis and the priests and the scribes. And, and we, we kind of get a little uncomfortable with their attitude. But in some ways, I'm not trying to excuse their behavior, but in some ways, they were just trying to prevent a bad thing ever happening to Israel because they recognized that they went into exile because they failed to respond to God by keeping the commandments. And so they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make make sure we never do that again. And so they had very meticulous and detailed rules and laws upon laws upon laws. And so in their thinking, they were just helping prevent that from ever happening again, that God would allow them to go off into exile. But there were these people, there was these people in the society that were not living up to the, observa- the the observance that they had required, and so these people were called sinners or people of the land, and yet Luke here says records that Jesus was there mingling with these sinners and tax collectors. What happened as a result in verse two? And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, "This man receives." sinners and eats with them. As I said, that's a terrible, scandalous thing to have said of you, isn't it? This man receives and eats with sinners. They had in their time what was called strict rules of table fellowship. You couldn't just, you know, you and I, when we're going to go eat lunch today, we're just going to probably go sit down and take out our fork and our spoon and our knives and we're going to eat and we're not going to think anything of some of these things. But they had such meticulous rules of how you were to eat with people and with whom you could eat. For example, this is just one of the crazy little rules that they had developed during the intertestamental period. If you, for example, for a meal were eating something with milk and somebody else was eating something made from meat or was meat, you are not allowed to sit across the table from one another. If you were friends, I suppose if you weren't friends, you could. But they were concerned that if you were sitting across the table from one another, your thoughts would both converge in the middle of the table, and they would mix together, and milk and meat, according to their traditions, was never to be mixed. And these were some of the crazy rules they had. Now, as I said, they sound crazy to us, but sometimes I wonder if we have similar crazy Restrictions. We won't get into that, but, you know, there's nothing wrong with having rules to interpret God's law. It's another thing to require everybody else to do it. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's, that's another sermon, though. I'm not diminishing the importance of rules and laws and following God obediently. All I'm saying is sometimes when we add rule upon rule upon rule upon rule... We forget why we ever had it to begin with, and then we keep on requiring other people to do it. This is what was happening in Jesus' day. And Jesus was being scandalous because he was drawing near to these people. He was fellowshipping with them. He was eating with them. He was spending time with them. And I'm wondering, friends, is there a lesson in the example of Jesus for us? as we seek to share our faith with others. You have this quotation there from the Ministry of Healing. This is a very well-known quotation, but it's something we need to cement in our minds. We need to get it firmly implanted in our minds. Ministry of Healing, page 143. Many of us, perhaps, can say it by memory, but this is what Jesus was doing right then and right there in Luke 15. Notice what Ellen White says. Christ's method what? Alone, Good for you guys. Either you filled it out ahead of time or you already knew the quote. Christ's method alone. That sounds pretty exclusive, doesn't it? Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. So when I hear something that Only this is what works. I kind of sit up and say, oh, let me take note of this. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior passed out tracks as he was driving by. That's what she says, right? (laughs) The Savior mingled with men. Mingled. We could probably spend the whole sermon just breaking down what that word mingle means. But the Savior mingled with men, not just to hang out and have a good time, but he mingled with men as one who, what? Desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Going back to previous sermons we had, the way he won their confidence is he had confidence in them. But he won their confidence. Then he bade them, follow me. What about us, though? What about us? Do we take the part of that drive-by evangelist? We say, okay, this is what evangelism is. It's passing out tracts. It's passing out literature. It's holding a big evangelistic series where the pastor gets up and speaks. Is that you name it, X, Y, Z. There's this mentality that we have seemed to have traditionally, where I stand over here, and you're over there, and I'm trying to give you something that you need, and then as soon as you take it, I'm going to leave. But that wasn't Christ's method, was it? Go back to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 34, because there's an interesting parallel as Jesus goes on to share the story of the lost sheep, he is actually playing off this idea in Ezekiel chapter 34. And there's very tight connections linguistically and thematically in the original of both Ezekiel 34 and Luke chapter 15. But notice what we read here in Ezekiel chapter 34. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. That's the leaders of the congregation. Prophesy against the shepherd of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds! Wow. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherd feed the flocks? Makes sense, right? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who are sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. What about us? Are we seeking and searching for the lost sheep? Or are we trying to send out bombs that hopefully they'll get the picture? Are we putting up billboards that say XYZ and hoping that millions of people will come to the lord because they have some billboard about what they're supposed to be doing i'm not i'm not trying to criticize these methods i mean we've all done them and you know there is a place for passing out tracts and so forth don't misunderstand what i'm saying but god's primary method of reaching the lost is seeking and searching and getting down in the trenches with them You know what this type of ministry is called? It's called incarnational ministry. Incarnational ministry. Now that term has been co-opted. In other words, it's been stolen by a type of movement within Christianity today. And uh, I'm not going to go into all that, but it's a term that's commonly used in what is known as the emerging church movement, incarnational the term itself and the idea behind it is good. But that doesn't mean I condone every other aspect of the emerging church. But the incarnational method of ministry is the biblical method of Christ's ministry. What does the word incarnation mean after all? You know what it, you know what it means? You have the uh, etymological meaning of it there. To make flesh. In is from the Latin word In. And caro is from the Latin word flesh or carne, carnis. Do we have any Spanish-speaking people here today? You know what chili con carne is, by the way, for those? (laughs) It's chili with flesh or meat. So what happens is when we have the incarnation, it's Jesus, first of all, coming down and taking on our flesh. The word became what? Flesh and Lived off by himself, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and took up residence in our neighborhood. It didn't stand off afar and and do uh, uh, mission trips once in a while and say, okay, I've done my work, now I'm going to retreat back to where I can have safety. The Word became flesh and lived and breathed and moved into our neighborhood. That is what is known as incarnational ministry. That is known as Christ's method, which alone brings true success. So you and I are wondering, how, how, you know, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? How are we going to share our faith? How are we going to reach people? How are we going to bring the gospel to others? Again, it's not just about the pastor holding random evangelistic meetings. Saying, okay, the pastor, rah, 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 we'll get behind you. We'll pray for you, which I hope that we do pray for the pastor as he prepares and shares the evangelistic meetings. But, and it's not about, okay, you know, I'm going to, and I'm kind of, I know I'm kind of being hard on one specific type of evangelism we often do. I, again, I think there's a place for it, but it's not just about me passing out tracts all the time and thinking, okay, that's what evangelism is. And I don't know a person, I'm just going to shove it in their face, and hopefully it's by God's grace. And many people have come to the Lord through this method, have they not? I praise the Lord for that. But Christ's method alone will bring true success. Interesting, isn't it, that she says true success met method alone. He went and pursued. He sought after. He came alongside of. That's what the word parakletos is, after all. To come alongside, to be called alongside of somebody. The Holy Spirit does that with us, does he not? The Holy Spirit comes alongside us. Jesus himself is called the parakletos in 1 John. He comes alongside us. And the question is, are you and I... Going to take the posture that Jesus took. If the King of the Universe, the King of the Universe, you know, Jesus could have said, you know, I'm going to leave heaven as my my mission command center, and I'm going to go for a week down to earth and I'm going to die and I'm going to come right back as soon as I can. What type of ministry and effectiveness would that have? But instead, for 30-plus years, Jesus lived and breathed and walked the dusty roads that you and I walk. And he got down and dirty with us, didn't he? So said, I'm going to come alongside of you. I'm going to be with you and hear your heart and share my heart with you. I love that idea that Jesus showed his sympathy for them. One of the most compelling things pictures I see of Jesus in the gospel is the one that always compels me is where it says, and he was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. He had sympathy for them. I just got to be honest with you. My natural tendency is to run away from people that are different from me. That's my, you know, I size people up very quickly, I say, okay, is this person come from my same demographic? Yes or no? If they're not, okay, I'm out of here. Just a very simple example of it, a couple of weeks ago, two Fridays ago, I had the, I had the uh, blessed opportunity to watch Camden and Acadia all day, and on Sabbath as well, as some of you know. <laughs> Amen. Camille was over in New Hampshire, and uh, so I was with the kids for Friday and Sabbath, And on Friday, one of the things we did was we went to the uh, playground. And I was watching the kids. The first thing I did when I got there, there were some people there. I started sizing them up. and started thinking, now, are these people that I'm going to want to talk to? That's what was going on in my heart. That's what was going on I, I, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, do they make the same amount of money I make? I'm not thinking necessarily explicitly of this, but you know, look at what they're wearing, you look at you know how they you hear how they're talking, you're thinking to yourself, no, no, no I don't I don't want to I don't want to go near them. It, it almost seems silly, but you know, that's what's going on in my heart. And as I thought about it later, I thought to myself, what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of when I see a man walking down the street, all grungy looking, with a beer bottle in his hand? What am I afraid of that would prevent me from coming alongside of him and being his friend? Really? I guess... The only thing I can come up with, and I'm just being open with you, the only thing I can come up with is that I fear my safety. Maybe that's just the only thing I'm fearful of. Maybe I'm fearful of my child's safety. I don't know. But what are we afraid of? Are we afraid that we're going to be contaminated by their, you fill in the blank, by their alcoholism, by their dirty mouth, by whatever? And I'm not saying we just have our kids come up and just hang out with a bunch of people who are just swearing their mouths off. Don't misunderstand me. But what are we afraid of? God invites us to come close to the people, doesn't he? He invites us to get heart-to-heart with them because his method alone will bring true success. Are we going to take up residence alongside these people? Are we going to keep them at arm's length? And say, I will, I'll be the big hero here and I'll rescue them. But I'm going to keep them at arm's length. I know that I have something really good for them. And so if they want to hear it, I'm going to give it to them, but I'm not going to get down and dirty with them. You know, I'm not, I'm not at all legitima- legitimizing other philosophies, other worldviews in life. But, you know, I get such a blessing when I hear people's testimony and their story, whether or not it lines up exactly with mine? Do you understand what I'm saying? I may sit next to a Muslim on a plane, and he tells me about his faith, and I'm not saying his faith is right at all. Don't misunderstand me. But it's just a blessing to be in fellowship with other people, isn't it? To hear their story. And it's not just about us cramming down our story down their throat. It's about us, and we're going to get into this in a couple sermons, but it's about us listening to them. There's a reason, i probably mentioned this before, and you've heard it before, there's a reason God gave us two ears and one mouth, right? Because we're supposed to listen twice as much as we talk. But God is inviting us to be incarnational, to practice the method of God's grace. It's not something that we can produce in our own hearts because we're selfish, we're we're egotistical, we're fearful, only as we meditate upon the infinite love and pursuit of Jesus Christ can you and I be compelled to do the same thing. As we look at Jesus, as we behold him, as we meditate upon the fact that he was constantly in pursuit of other people, we say, wow, if my God is... Having that heart towards me, how can I not do the same towards others who have far fewer differences from me than I do from God? you follow me? The difference between us and God is like to an infinite degree compared to the difference between you and me and any single human being on the face of this earth no matter if they 're the they're a, a belligerent atheist or they 're a, a zealous Buddhist or whatever, the difference between us and them is less than the difference between us and God, and yet God still pursues us and seeks us out and takes up residence and comes alongside us and says, this is what my heart is all about. Christ's method alone will give true success. A couple of years ago, as I was pastoring in Vermont, there was a young lady that Came to one of my churches, and she uh, was, I think, a teenager at the time. And she had some um, mental challenges, which uh, you know she was still a fairly functional young lady. But she kept on inviting me to come visit her at her home, and I kept on kind of putting it off, putting it off because it was a long drive from where I was living, and you know uh, I wasn't sure. I wanted to make sure that when I went and visited her, her parent would be there, so it wasn't just me visiting with her. And finally she said, oh yeah, you know, you can come over. My mom will be home. And so I said, okay, I'll go. I'll, I'll go visit you. And uh, I took the long journey to her house and I pulled in the driveway and it was, when I pulled in the driveway, I knew immediately, I knew immediately what type of environment I was going to be stepping into. It was a very, very, very rundown trailer home. And I got out of the car and I, I uh, walked into the house, and when I stepped inside, I could not believe what I saw. I could not believe. The place was an absolute mess. Absolute mess. And uh, there was magazines stacked like up to the ceiling. There were dishes just everywhere in the sink. The floor, it was like you could hardly see an inch of the floor. And uh, the whole time I was there, which was probably 30 minutes or an hour, I just stood up the whole time because there was literally nowhere for me to sit. There was literally no room for me to sit. And, uh, you know, the young lady, she was just so grateful that her pastor came and visited her. And the whole time I was there, I was just, I felt dirty. I felt, man, what am I going to get out of here? I'm just telling you, I'm just being honest with you. This is my natural, selfish heart. thinking, man, this just place gives me the creeps, you know. And as I, But as I get to talking a little bit more, by the way, ironically, her mother said, oh, you should see my daughter's room. It is so dirty. And I was thinking, <laughs> if that's dirty, I don't know. what you know. But as I was visiting there with her, it came up that this young lady had a sibling that just a few months before had put a gun to his head and taken his own life. And this young lady, I think, had had some maturity issues because of, actually, it, was, it had actually been a few years before because I think her maturity kind of leveled off right at that point after that happened. And her mother worked, like, round the clock. She was often home by herself. You know, my heart just started sinking as I was hearing her story. And uh, as I got into my car, I said to myself, Shame on you. Shame on you. This whole time, I'm just trying to get out as fast as I can. And yet here is a young lady whose heart is breaking and broken, actually, who doesn't have one thing going for her. And all I can think about is getting out as fast as I can. And I realized the incarnation of Jesus was a far greater sacrifice than my 30 minutes of visiting at that young lady's house. That's what God's heart is all about, friends, for us. The filth and dirtiness of this earth compares, is just far exceeds anything you and I could ever step into for the sake of evangelism. And yet God did not spare his own son, yet gave him up for us all. What about us? Christ's method alone will give true success. And so my appeal to you and my appeal to myself this morning is asking, Lord, how can I reflect your incarnation as I answer the call to reach this community with the gospel message? How can I get down and dirty? Not becoming like everybody else, like taking on all their characteristics and attributes and becoming this XYZ, but Lord, what can I do to come close to the people I am seeking to share the gospel with? So it's not you versus me, but it's us. How can we do that?